Now, every now and then, I have this rather candid conversation with my wife, Maisin, about who should die first. Should I die first? Or should Maisin die first? Now, based on statistics, I will die first because men have uh, sort of a lower life expectancy, right? And furthermore, I'm older than her. So, and the selfish part of me uh, actually thinks that it is probably better if I die before she did. Because I will struggle more without her than her without me. See, while I take care of minor repairs at home, and I'm not good at it, uh, I cannot cook apart from eggs and instant noodles. Thank God for SAF, right? And I'm also very bad at cleaning up mess. You know, once I see mess, I'm like, okay, I stand there for a while and I don't know what to do. Right? So things like spills or vomit, I cannot do it. I might just land up adding on to the vomit. See, but Mason, on the other hand, uh, she's really amazing in this regard. She's unfazed by all the mess. You know, she's, she'll just clean it, you know, as if, uh, if it's needed. I just, just, it's part of the job, right? So it's no wonder that when our, our kids messed up, they will always run to her instead of running to me. So that's why I selfishly think that it will be better that I die first. But my wife, Mason, always remind me, you know, God has sometimes a good sense of humor. He may just do the opposite for my sanctification. But in the end, so what if I die first? Well, perhaps the family can deal with it better. So what if Mason dies first? It may mean more grief and more challenges, especially for me. But in the final analysis, does it really matter? I guess the bigger question and the more important question is really, what if, or so what, if Jesus dies? So what if Jesus dies? What significance does Jesus' death have for you and for me? See, our Bible passage today, Luke 22, tells us three ways how Jesus' death is significant. Well, firstly, Jesus' death will bring in a new salvation, a new age, and a new covenant. Secondly, Jesus' death gives a new definition of greatness. And lastly, Jesus' death introduces a new way of living. And that's what we're going to go through today as we go along in this sermon. Now, the chapter begins with Luke telling us that the, that the feast of the unleavened bread, and the Passover is near. Now, these are two very significant Jewish festivals. They celebrate and they commemorate God's delivering and saving of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now, for those who may not be familiar with the history of Israel or with the Old Testament, see, the Israelites, they were oppressed as slaves in Egypt. So God heard their cries and sent plagues after plagues you know, of frogs, of gnats, of, of flies, of pestilence, of boils on, and hails. But Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. In the end, God has to send the final plague, the death of all firstborn across all of Egypt for that to happen. See, the Israelites would be hit by the same plague. However, God gave them a way out in Exodus chapter 12. 
he gave instructions for them to kill an unblemished lamb or a perfect lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes. So in Exodus 12, we read, The Lord then came at night and struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. However, he passed over all the Israelite houses that had blood on their doorposts. So the lamb became the substitute for the Israelite firstborn. In that way, the Israelites escaped from the certain death. The Passover is then to celebrate how God has spared them through the Lamb. And with the last plague, Pharaoh sent the Israelites out of Israel. And it was done in such a haste that the Israelites had no time to wait for their bread to rise. So they can only bring unleavened bread with them. Now, for those who do not know what unleavened bread is, it's something like our, our roti prata or our naan bread. Quite nice, right? Yeah, so they had no time for it to rise, so they will have to bring unleavened bread with them. This is already anticipated and instructed by the Lord. And ever since then, the Israelites observed this week-long festival, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, to celebrate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Now, these two feasts are celebrated one after the other and uh, were sometimes seen as one. Now, it's at this time of the year where all the male Jews all over the world, all over the country, will come to Jerusalem as pilgrims. It is a wonderful time, wonderful time for the Jewish people to celebrate and remember God's salvation of His people. But what were the chief priests and the scribes doing at such a time? Well, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. However, they dare not. They dare not do it because they feared the people. You know, as we all know, security during anniversaries of like September 11 or the Tiananmen Square protest, they will always be on the highest, right? For many, it will be very emotionally charged on that day. Any incident may just spark riots and violence that will be very hard to suppress. So similarly, the chief priests and the scribes, they were very fearful that all these excited pilgrims, many of whom are supporters of Jesus, may just cause a riot. And the Roman authorities may just come down on them after that. So here they are, seeking to kill Jesus, but they can't do it or they dare not do it. They were never in control of the situation. However, their problem is solved. An insider is willing to help by betraying Jesus. Judas took the initiative to confer with the chief priests and the officers to betray Jesus. If you look at verse 5, it tells us that the chief priests are obviously glad about the arrangements. Happy about it. Finally, they found a way to arrest Jesus quietly and to kill him safely. But my friends, what a great irony it is. The celebration of life at this time became the occasion for death. 
instead of celebrating the saving of lives, they are plotting to take a life. How warped it is when happiness and joy is linked to premeditated murder. But why did Judas betray Jesus? He wasn't under threat or pressured to do so. Now, we are not told of the reason specifically in this passage. But Judas probably realised that you know, Jesus is not, not what he thought he would be. He wouldn't give him all the power, the position and the prosperity that he was hoping for. The prospect of suffering certainly did not excite him. So, he might be trying to cut losses at this point. See, the note on receiving money in verse 5 gives us the hint that that is why it was so, why he betrayed Jesus. But Jesus is not surprised at what is happening. If you look at verse, verses 21 to 22, he knew exactly what will happen. His betrayal and his death has been determined. Yet Judas is going to be held responsible for his actions. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This is the mystery of God's providence. It is all in the plan of God, but human beings are still responsible for their actions. Judas can't simply blame Satan. It's all your fault. Yes, Satan played a huge part in this. He's definitely the impetus. He also shows that all that is happening is a cosmic and spiritual struggle and not merely the results of human schemes. But Judas will have to answer up for his actions. Now the scholar Leon Morris summed it up very well and I read, the fact that God overrules the evil that bad people do as he brings his purposes to pass does not make them any less evil. And as we know, there was no repentance apart from grief from Judas. So what is clear then is this. Jesus, he is going to be betrayed and he will die during the Passover. So what is the significance of that? So what if Jesus dies during the Passover? See, Jesus' death at the Passover means a new salvation, a new age, and a new covenant. In other words, Jesus' death is going to change everything. And this can be seen in how Jesus gives new interpretations to the elements of the Passover meal. So firstly, in verse 19, Jesus gave a new meaning and a significance. We see that on the slide, verse 19. He gave a new meaning and significance to the bread. Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, the breaking of the bread and the words given for you points to his death on our behalf and for our sake. It's not about leaving Egypt hastily anymore. It is about him dying for us. And after that, Jesus gave a new meaning and significance to the cup. Now, in a Passover meal, traditionally, there are four cups that they will be, they will be drunk. So it's not surprising when you read 
uh, Luke 22, there's a, there's a mention of two cups. But it's not the number of cups that matters. What is more important is what Jesus says about the cup. So in verse 20, Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, to understand the significance of his words, we must turn to the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. See, God made a covenant with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. However, they broke this covenant by breaking the law. Time after time, they did that. So God promised to make a new covenant, a new covenant in the future, and this new covenant will be different. God will put his law within us and he will write it in our hearts. It's a way of saying that his people will then be able to obey the law and God will forgive their sins. Now the people of Israel do not know how and when this new covenant will be made. But now Jesus in giving the new significance to the bread and the cup, saying that it's by His blood, this new covenant will be made. In other words, it is by His death that this new covenant will be enacted. His death will pay for the sins of His people so that they can be forgiven. Now what is obviously not mentioned in the Gospel of Luke but in, in the Gospel of John is that the Holy Spirit will then be given after his death. The Holy Spirit will then enable his people to obey God and keep his commandments. So these new interpretations of the bread and wine gives a whole new interpretation to the Passover meal. It ultimately points to Jesus' Jesus's death during the Passover. So Jesus is then the new and ultimate sacrificial lamb that brings salvation to all who believe in him. It's no longer salvation from slavery for a nation. Instead, it will be a new salvation from sin for all believers from every nation, from every race, and from every tongue. This new and greater salvation has become has come because Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. See, with his crucified body and with the blood that he shed, he has purchased the salvation for all who believed in him. So God's wrath on all sinners will now pass over his people at the final judgment. Now this means that the past, that Jesus' death had yes, put an end, an end to the celebration of the Jewish Passover meal for Christians. And that's why Jesus says that the next time he's going to drink and he's going to eat such a celebratory kind of meal will be when the kingdom is consummated, when he returns in the future. See, this Passover meal in Luke 22 will be his last with his disciples in this earthly life. Yeah, his suffering, his death is not the end. The expectation that Jesus will eat this meal again in the kingdom to come shows that Jesus will be alive again. And with his death, and of course his resurrection, a new age has started. It is a new age with a new covenant 
and a new salvation which will be consummated in the end. But meanwhile, for us as Christians, we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus dying for us. Now, the Lord's Supper is not a re-sacrifice of Jesus, like some would might think, but it's actually a very tangible, a very experiential remembrance of God's grace towards us in the Lord Jesus. And then He will strengthen us to look to the future kingdom to come. So my friend, what does this mean for us? It means that Jesus must die, isn't it? If Jesus didn't die, there will be no new salvation, no new age, and no new covenant. If Jesus didn't die, there will be no payment for our sins. There will be no forgiveness of our sins. We will remain in our sin. What awaits us then is the rightful wrath of a holy God. Now, by this idea of sin and judgment, you know, it may not go down well with some of us. You know, we might think that, well, we're not really that bad. You know, you look at the recent news now, we might, we might even find comfort that we are not like the military leaders who orders the shooting of their citizens. We are not people who rape others. We are not people who abuse their domestic helpers. We are not that bad. Well, I conducted a, a wedding rehearsal for one of the couples in ARPC some years back. Now, the father of the bride and the bride planned to have a violin duet uh, during the wedding. So I had the privilege of listening to them play it during the rehearsal. And I thought it was, it was brilliant, it was, it was beautiful, and I enjoyed it very much. Then after the practice, the two of them came down, and they talked to the sister of the bride, who is also a musician. And then they start talking about, oh, it's a bit flat at this point, uh, or maybe you could improve at that point. And I was a little bit stunned with all the exchanges between them. I thought it was really good, it was beautiful, but it wasn't as good as I thought it to be. Why? Because I judged it by my own standards, which is, of course, not very high. Now, my friends, that's the same for sin. See, we gauge our sin based on our own standards of holiness. We think we are alright because we are not as bad as the people around us. But before a holy God all our imperfections, all our hidden thoughts, our hidden sins will be revealed. As such, we cannot stand before a holy God and claim that we are not too bad. See, Romans 3 tells us that we are utterly sinful. No one is good. Therefore, Jesus has to die. You see, if we are really not that bad, then Jesus wouldn't have to die. We would have been able to save ourselves. But Jesus did die. And his death tells us how great a sinner we all are. Now, if you are hearing this for the first time or you have not trusted in Jesus yet, God is speaking to you now through his Son. The only way to be forgiven and to be saved from God's wrath is to trust 
in the Lord Jesus. Turn to Him humbly and trust in His death for you. For the Christians, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it is easy to think self-righteously about ourselves over time. Oh, I became a Christian, I'm a better man, I'm a better person, I'm good. And uh, Jesus dying for us can sometimes be just a cliché at the back of our minds. We say it, we roll it off our tongues. But may God's word speak to us again that we are also the people that Jesus died for. So next week, if you have been efficient enough to sign up for service here again, as you celebrate the communion, remember the undeserved grace that you receive because of Jesus. Remember the body that was broken for you. Remember the blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Remember the death that has brought us hope of life in the consummated kingdom. And be thankful. So what if Jesus dies? Firstly, Jesus' death means that there is a new covenant, a new age, a new salvation. But secondly, Jesus' death means a new definition of greatness. See, by this time, the disciples understood that Jesus will be betrayed and perhaps suffer. However, they still do not get their full implications of it yet. That is why a dispute arose among them as to which of them will be greatest. Perhaps they think oh, this difficult period is going to be short-lived. After all, Jesus did talk about a kingdom to come. Or perhaps they think that the suffering will not be that drastic. Now, a friend of mine, you know, his father just passed away not, not too long ago. So I went to visit his friend at the wake. And then he was telling me that the saddest part of his father's death wasn't the death itself. He's a Christian, he has gone to the Lord. The saddest part was the family dispute between his siblings over the inheritance. The, the dispute started even before his father passed on. One of the siblings tried to change the will to get the biggest share. And as it is now, siblings sent lawyer letters to one another. How sad and how tragic. And this is happening to Jesus and his disciples. The disciples clearly knew that Jesus is going to be betrayed, but yet they are talking about who will be greatest in the kingdom. See, the disciples are not getting it. So Jesus had to rebuke and teach them about what true greatness is. So he started off with telling them what greatness in the world is like in verse 25. See, in verse 25, we see that it's exemplified by how the kings of the Gentiles behave. See, the kings are those who have authority and their power over the common folk. And you see the verb court, court benefactors, court, in verse 25, it is most likely reflective, okay, in Greek. It means that these kings like to self-dexinate and like to make other people or call themselves benefactors. Now, benefactors is a, is a title that commands 
and you know and expects respect, you know, honor and worship. It's like getting some civil awards. So these are what people are like in the world and how greatness is defined. They draw a lot of attention to themselves and they take credit for everything in order to look great and be respected. But Jesus said in verse 26 that this must not be so with God's people. The contrast is sharp and emphatic in the original language. In other words, Jesus is is saying, is setting a whole new definition of greatness, which is the exact opposite or the total opposite of the world's definition. Jesus says that the greatest among you must become the youngest. Now, why youngest? A bit strange, right? Well, in the ancient world, seniority is often associated with leadership positions, power and privilege. They are deemed as the greater ones. The youngest are often you know, disregarded and they don't care much about them. But Jesus says that the reverse is what God's people should be. The greatest and the leaders, those in position and privilege should be like the youngest instead. They should take up the attitude of the youngest position, serving others instead of expecting to be served. Now the ultimate example of this new definition of greatness it's, of course, the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus himself. See, instead of reclining at the table to be served, Jesus, the master, the Lord, the VIP, is the one who serves instead. Now, if we harmonize this with the Gospel of John, it would have been uh, Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet before the meal, isn't it? Nobody wanted to do that, but Jesus did that. And that washing of the feet is not just the washing of the feet. It points to a greater washing and service. Jesus will serve by dying on the cross for them. So what then are some lessons for us in this regard? Well, firstly, we must be careful not to deliberately draw attention to the things that we have done, whether it's at work or in service or in giving. Now, I'm not talking about propriety or copyright issues here. But I'm talking about telling people what we are doing and what we have done. See, sometimes the overwork and the efforts that you have put in, the sacrifices you have made, the sending out emails in late hour and constantly mentioning about what you have done or your contributions in all your conversations. "Ah, I've done this, I've done that. These are often done to boost our greatness and feel good before others. Another telltale sign is when we get all upset if our names are not mentioned in a project, a work, an initiative in a company, or even ministry in church. You know, the write-up, you know, doesn't have your name on it. Or maybe in a Thanksgiving email or speech, you are not mentioned. Your photos does not appear anywhere. See, that, my friends, is the way of greatness in the fallen sinful world. But it is not greatness in the world of Christ. But secondly, we must be careful. Careful in how we treat others when we are in positions of power and authority. Now, whether it is in the business world, the 
the sporting world, the medical line, sometimes sadly in churches and charitable organisations, we have heard of many who abuse their position to bully others. See, in a smaller way, it can be a case of it is my way or the highway. Everyone must follow what and how I want to do things. Or in a bigger way, as we heard so much recently, is the abuse of those under their charge. See, Jesus tells us clearly and effectively that is not his way. Greatness is defined by taking the lowly position with humble service to others. Now, service and servanthood doesn't mean that everyone now must start washing feet, you know, start cleaning tables, mopping the floor, clean the toilets. No. You see, the Lord Jesus himself did not constantly do that, right? But he's ever willing to do that if needed. And he's willing to die for others. So it is the disposition, the attitude and the motivation that matters. Of course, that will mean that we must always be willing to do all the dirty and menial jobs if needed in the service of others. As such, I'm, I'm always very appreciative of the servants of the man duty. Because it doesn't matter whether you are youth in basic or an older person in golden group, whether you are a clerk, you are a cleaner, you are a lawyer or a doctor, or whatever position you, you hold in this world. Because all will have to do it. We will sweat together, we will serve together, sometimes get scolded together. However, this is only a small display of the new definition of greatness. The servanthood must be the all-encompassing attitude and posture at home, in our workplaces, and anywhere else. This is Jesus' definition of greatness, marked by his death. So what if Jesus dies? Firstly, Jesus' death means that there is a new salvation, a new age, and a new covenant. Secondly, Jesus' death means a new definition of greatness. But lastly, Jesus' death means a new way of living. And this new way of living involves suffering. See, after speaking to his disciples about service, Jesus then reveals to Simon Peter what is happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm and what will happen to him. See, in verse 31, he told Peter that Satan demand, demanded to have him so that he might sift him like wheat. Now, sifting wheat is like separating the grain uh, from the sieve. It is an image of taking apart the whole head of the grain. So it's a metaphor to mean the use of trials and suffering to destroy someone. Now, interest, interestingly, the, you know, the two used in verse 31, they are plural in Greek. Perhaps Jesus is saying to all the disciples that they will likewise be going through trials as well. But strangely, in verse 32, the use there became singular. So it seems that Peter is now the specific target in the immediate future as the first among all equals. Now, I had a friend in, a, in primary school who told me 
that he likes a girl in the class and he just sits in the next table. So one day he tries to tell me how much he likes this girl, you know, and uh, so much so that he's willing to die for her. So what did he do? Then he took out his pen knife and then he stuck out his finger and he said to me, I'm going to die for her. And then she pretends to slit his finger with his pen knife. But tragically, he accidentally slit his finger. And then blood gushed out from his fingers. Like, ah! And he panicked and then he quickly cried out for help before the teacher brought him to the office to get it bandaged. Now, perhaps not as naive and childish as my friend, Simon Peter did the same thing. He declared in his usual brashness, I'm ready to go with you, Jesus, both to prison and death. Clearly, Peter has no idea what is coming for him. But Jesus knows better. Despite Peter's rash declaration of loyalty, Jesus told him that he will deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And we all know that it is truly so in verses 54 to 62. See, Peter overestimated himself and he underestimated the pressure of suffering and persecution. And he surely underestimated the behind-the-scene cosmic battle with Satan. And he buckled under all the pressure and threat. But there's still grace, still grace despite all his failures. Jesus had prayed for him in verse 32. In verse 32, he says, he prayed for him that his faith may not fail. And with that, Jesus knew that Peter's failure is not the end. He will not fall away completely. See, his statement in verse 32 assumed that Peter would turn back. When Peter repents, he will be forgiven and in fact, he will be used to strengthen his fellow brothers. And theologically speaking, that is possible because Jesus has won the battle with Satan, not just in preserving Peter, but, in, but also in overcoming sin with his death. And as we know now, uh, Peter's repentance and restoration came true too. See, John chapter 21, verse 15 to 19, tells us that he eventually kept his faith in Jesus. See, unlike Judas, Peter's denial was a moment of weakness. But Judas' betrayal was a planned plot to kill Jesus. Even up to the end, there was only guilt but no repentance on the part of Judas. But nonetheless, Peter has to make good his vows to Jesus. Because from the, books of, from the book of Acts, Peter eventually became the first preacher of the gospel in the New Testament church. He was then imprisoned for doing that. And tradition has it that Peter died for his faith. See, his brashness is not that brash after all. This episode about Peter tells us that a new way of living for disciples will involve suffering. As Christians live, proclaim, and stand up for Jesus, they will suffer. And Jesus further emphasized that in verses 35 to 38 for all his disciples. See, when Jesus sent out the 12 and the 72, earlier in the, in the Gospel of Luke, to proclaim the Gospel, 
He told them, there's no need to take anything with them. They, can, they have to depend on the generosity and the hospitality of the people instead. And they truly lacked nothing throughout the mission. Now, however, Jesus tells them to bring, bring whatever provision with them. And then we have this strange instruction to bring a sword. Is Jesus inciting violence? Well, clearly not, because when you go back and read Luke chapter 22, verse 50 to 51, Jesus told his disciples to put away their swords when the people came to arrest him. And he even healed the ear of a, of a servant, which one of the, the servants, which uh, of his disciples cut off. So what is this whole sword thing about? It is Jesus' way of telling them to expect suffering and violence against them. They may even find themselves in mortal danger. But why is there this change of instructions from Luke 9 and 10 to now Luke 22? Well, the answer is simple. Well, Jesus was not so hated in the beginning and may be even popular in some areas. Hence, people will still be generous towards his disciples. However, Jesus is clearly hated now. People have drawn their lines and they will put him to death. So his servants will likewise be hated. And we see that, oh no, so they'll, they'll be hated and instead of receiving hospitality, their disciples will receive hostility. Instead of expecting generosity from people, they will be deprived of all things. So we see that fulfilled in the book of Acts. God's people, and especially those who proclaim the gospel, were indeed persecuted by people. And Jesus then quotes Isaiah 53 verse 12 to reinforce that point. We see on the slide, Isaiah 53 in the quote is about a suffering servant who will suffer and be slaughtered like a lamb for the transgression of others. Obviously, that is fulfilled by Jesus as the ultimate lamb. However, in quoting Isaiah 53 verse 12, specifically in this context, the emphasis is not so much about Jesus being the one who died for us. The emphasis, in quoting verse 12, is the shame that the servant has to bear. Because the servant not only dies, but he dies shamefully as he's numbered with transgressors. He who is sinless, but died shamefully with those who deserves to die, the criminals. In other words, Jesus is saying that this is what will happen to him. And his servants will likewise face the same shame and suffering. Innocent, but will still be counted among the transgressors. But obviously the disciples are not getting it. They report to Jesus that, Lord, we have two swords now. And when Jesus says it is enough, it does not mean that two swords are enough. He probably means enough of this talk. Enough. You are still not getting it. What about us? Are we getting it? 
Do we get it that suffering is part of our new life as Christians? Perhaps some of us are like Judas, thinking that following Jesus means power, position, and prosperity. So it's a good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Why do you follow Jesus? Now for some, it could be easy and fancy to be identified as a Christian. Now that happened centuries ago. When Emperor Constantine became emperor, he made Christianity the official religion. Everyone wants to be a Christian then. The persecuted church became the privileged church. It may still be true in some countries or circles today. Becoming Christian means connection with foreigners and gaining a network of business and contacts, and for some, entry into some schools. It may mean more material blessings and more prosperity for some. But let us hear what Jesus is saying. If we identify closely with Him, identify with His ways, identify with His values, we will suffer. We may likewise be numbered among the transgressors. You see, in our modern world of cancer culture, we may be cancelled, ostracized, or written off simply for standing up for Jesus. See, if you say something against abortion, sexual purity, having integrity, you will be easily shamed and harassed. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should go all militant and aggressive about those issues, but more and more so, we are not even allowed to voice our opinions as an equal member of the society. See, slowly and surely, Christians will be sidelined and oppressed and their, bad, and their opinions will be thrown out. Now, what will you choose to do then? Will you still identify with Jesus? Or will you deny him? Now, I'm not asking you to go all rara on a social media. In fact, I ask you not to. But will you stand up for Jesus when you are asked? Will you equip yourself to answer anyone for the hope and for the values you hold as a Christian? See, my friends, Jesus' death means a whole new way of living as his people. See, contrary to what people think, it's not going to be comfy. But there, yet there will be still grace for us. Grace that will grant us forgiveness when we fail and grace that will strengthen us to persevere. And that grace is secured for us in Jesus' death. And may that grace see us through this earthly life till we drink and we feast with Jesus in the consummated kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled and thankful for the grace you have shown to us in the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Forgive us if we have taken the death of Jesus for granted. 
but we got too bored with it. Help us see the depth of our sins so that we may know the enormity of your grace. May you also convict us that following Jesus means to serve and be ready to suffer. Help us neither to follow or fear the world, but to follow and fear you instead. Strengthen us to live for you as we await the day when we will feast with you in the kingdom to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.